0: Well, welcome back to all of you uh, from around the world who are watching Palestine Deep Dive back with us today. Um, Here at Palestine Deep Dive, we examine the big issues in the Middle East, uh, and we look around with a special focus on Palestine. But we also take a look each week at some of the big issues affecting uh, the global situation, what's making the news and what isn't making the news. And of course, We really do want to hear from you. Uh, Do let us know if you've got any questions, send them in. Tell us where you're from, who you are. uh, And we will be putting uh, your questions to our special guest tonight. And I'm delighted to be joined by author and activist, Jeff Halper. Uh, I should tell you some background about Jeff. Many of you will know him, of course. Many of you will have read his books, his articles. I will have followed him over the years in his activism. Uh, But uh, for those who don't know Jeff, uh, he immigrated to Israel back in 1973, where he is tonight. Uh, uh, Jeff is in Jerusalem, Uh, and uh, uh, he taught anthropology at Haifa and Ben-Gurion universities. In 1997, he co-founded the Israeli Committee against house demolitions. And in 2006, he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Now, we're particularly lucky and uh, pleased to have Jeff tonight because tomorrow uh, sees the launch of his latest book. Uh, The book is titled Decolonizing Israel, Liberating Palestine, Zionism, Settler Colonialism, and the Case for One Democratic State. It's published by Pluto Press, and the launch is being co hosted by the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions. And uh, of course, Jeff. Uh, We'll be joined tomorrow by the journalist uh, Yasmin Alibi-Brown, and the event is being hosted by Pluto Press. So, um, Jeff, before we um, come to the the end this evening, you must tell us more about the event and how people can take part. Um, And uh, we hope that as a result of our uh, discussion this evening and questions that will come back, will come in, uh, there'll be uh, people who will want to buy your book. So we want to see that, (laughs) by Jeff's book. Jeff, um, I want to begin and I really want to begin uh, with, with my first question is going to be a slightly long question because we're going to try and get to the heart of it very, very quickly. Um, Because the central thesis of your book and your argument is in many respects, um, kind of slightly taboo, not for us of course, But for many in the mainstream media and mainstream political parties, especially in the West, it is, Uh, and uh, there are many people who would rather not like to discuss these issues. There are some uh, who would actually like to close down the debate altogether, and we'll get on to that. But I want to really focus on your argument, and I, I think it's simply probably this, that when it comes to the historic land that is Palestine, we should look at settler colonialism to provide a clearer understanding of the Zionist movement's project to establish a Jewish state in Palestine, displacing the Palestinian Arab population and marginalising its cultural presence. Now, that's the central tenet of your argument, I think. But what I want to begin to ask, uh, begin by asking you, is just to simply explain uh, to people watching tonight. Um, what is settler colonialism, uh, settler colonialism, and what do you say to those who would argue that really there is no comparison with the settler colonialism that's taken place in other parts of the world um, more recently, particularly in parts of Africa? Can you, can you actually set out your stall?
1: Right. Well, <clears throat> it's a very in- important term, settler colonialism. It's more than a term, it's a new paradigm. the new way of really approaching the well, that's the point I'm trying to make. It's not a conflict. And I want to get away from that term. Um, and I'll tell you why. A conflict, you know, however you um, define a situation determines to a large degree what the solution can possibly be. Um, so if you define the Israeli-Palestine issue as a conflict, It locks you into a certain kind of an approach, a conflict resolution approach. And a conflict is when you have two or more sides and they're fighting about something. And the only way you resolve a conflict is you get the sides together, they negotiate, they compromise and they find some kind of a technical solution and then they get get on with things. But this isn't the conflict. Settler colonialism is a unilateral process Settler colonialism is when a people come to a country with the intent of taking it over. In other words, they're not coming to the country as immigrants. Jews came to Palestine or the land of Israel as they called it for centuries. I mean, they were Jews here when the Zionist wound began and there were no problems. They came basically as immigrants. In other words, they came, they wanted to live in the Holy Land uh, they integrated with the population here, you know, to one degree or, or the other and everything was fine with that. There was no problem with that. Zionism was a, was a settler project. In other words, it, it intended and it said very clearly, it was all upfront, there was nothing hidden, that, that w- the land of Israel belongs to us exclusively and that's part of the problem of settler colonialism. Every settler colonial movement, um, and Zionism isn't actually an exception. The United States is settler, colon- was settler colonial, is settler colonial, uh, Canada, South Africa, Algeria, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Tibet. I mean, there's a lot of places in the world. In my book, I sort of get into other areas, other places as well. Much of Latin America, you know, uh, was settler colonial in that the old form of colonialism that we're all familiar with, the British in India. You know, where the British come in, they conquer India and they want to extract and exploit its resources and its cheap labor. But there was never an intention of India becoming a part of Britain. They never said the Indians are British or we're gonna give them citizenship or, you know, there was none of that. That was classical colonialism settler colonialism is when the settlers and it happens in every case the settlers make up a story a narrative about why the country that they're coveting belongs to them it usually has to do with god (laughs) god gave it to us or you know whatever the story is and of course with zionism it was ready made because you had the whole biblical account so the idea was that we we, the foreign people coming into this country, we are entitled to it. It belongs really to us, you see. I'm, and I'm, you- wondering,
0: I'm wondering, Jeff, um, because settler colonialism is very often associated with those parts of the world where the settlers ended up being, despite their best efforts possibly, being in a minority and remaining in a minority and eventually yeah. losing power and either accepting that or leaving. And you mentioned Algeria, the French colon. Right, um, I'm thinking right. about Southern Rhodesia and Angola, yeah. where there was an attempt, by the way, by the uh, Portuguese to assimilate uh, Angolans into becoming Portuguese. That's, right. that's right. Um, But you do seem to draw a distinction between, um, that's kind of settler colonialism. Right. And the, 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 the set, well, I suppose the settlerism, of the Afrikaners, the Boers in South Africa, they end up becoming the white tribe of Africa and remaining and compromising and surviving. Um, so there, there, there seem to be lots of different types of settler colonialism. I suppose where people would come back and say, "Well, how outrageous that Jeff is saying this is," is because they'd say, "Well, look." Uh, Yes, he's talking about these countries, but that have been settled over the past few hundred years or whatever, but actually in Palestine, there have been Jews for millennia. So this is nothing, this is not a new thing.
1: That's right. No, but the Jews coming for millennia weren't settlers. They didn't come to take over the country. They came to live in the Holy Land. That's all. That's fine. But no, there are different kinds of settler colonialism. Now, It's true in Algeria and uh, Mozambique and Kenya and other places, the settlers were a minority and they either stayed or in many cases they left if they were a small minority or a minority. On the other hand, you've got the United States and Canada and Australia, where in fact the settlers are the vast, vast majority. And the problem there is that the indigenous are so small and so marginalized and so powerless that they have, no more, um, they have no more chance and no more aspiration of taking over, the, and they're not going to overthrow the United States. So in those situations, the indigenous population simply try to carve out as much as they can of a cultural realm of their own, they, their land, some control of land, some control of resources of their culture, but within the larger framework. Israel-Palestine or Zionism is is much more like South Africa. It's a middle level kind of a thing. And that is that the settlers did did succeed in creating a state, the South African state of apartheid, the state of Israel, they succeeded in creating a political uh, reality, a state and so on, that can't be ignored. But they never succeeded in defeating the indigenous. Like the, like the Native Americans, for example. In other words, they never succeeded in so overwhelming them, either demographically or power-wise, that the indigenous population gave up its aspiration of having a country of its own, a national identity. So the difference between, for example, the, the Native Australians or the Native Americans uh, and the Blacks in South Africa or the Palestinians is that is that the former were small populations that had to deal with a much more powerful and wider settler colonial society that it wasn't gonna get rid of. Whereas the South Africans and the Palestinians were strong enough demographically. I mean, the Palestinians are more than half the population. They're not the minority here. Before Mm -hmm. refugees come back, they're strong enough demographically, they're strong enough politically as a people that they can still aspire realistically to a state, if not a state of their own, at least a state in which they get into a sharing kind of an arrangement with the settlers, like South Africa did. So, so in other yes, words, well, I different mean, kind yes, of mean, settler colonialism here in which the settlers are not going to go away yeah, as they did in Algeria, but at the same time, they're not going to become small minority groups like they did in the United States or Australia.
0: I mean, Jeff, you'll, you'll recall that in um, South Africa, I mean, towards the end of uh, uh, Apartheid, um, actually, when it's almost at its zenith, come to think of it, but, but it was already dying, um, yeah. the Apartheid regime set about creating homelands, trans guy cis uh, bantustans, they were called. Yeah. Um, like in, interestingly, they, 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 you could say there is a, almost a correlation um, uh, in the occupied territories, Uh, under the Oslo Accords, because there are A, B and C or D areas or whatever, but areas of Palestinian natives um, surrounded by Israel. So the the model, there seems to be a similarity in the model. Um, And I suppose then the question leads on to this issue. And I know that you think actually that this is a much more fundamental issue than apartheid. I mean, settler colonialism is a, a, for you, is a much more... um, Uh, accurate way of looking at the situation in Palestine at the moment. Um, But do you also see the parallels between the Apartheid state and in South Africa and Apartheid in Israel-Palestine?
1: No, for sure. Of course there's an Apartheid similarity. As a matter of fact, Bethselem, which is the largest human rights organization in Israel, just came out this week with a statement (laughs) that this is Apartheid. That's, uh, That's pretty clear. Look, here you have to think about this as what I call a hybrid regime. Um, it's settler colonialism. Is It's true what you're saying is the big picture. Um, then you also have occupation. But you also have apartheid. And it's almost like, mm-hmm. a, you know, it's like an expanding kind of a thing. Occupation is over 22% of the country. The mm-hmm. West Bank... East Jerusalem and Gaza, at least in terms of the, the international law. This is, this is considered be yeah. occupied territory. So the problem is if we look at this as a conflict, I, let me go back to my original point. Problem is the conflict makes us makes us out to be okay. You've got Israel on 78% of the country, mm-hmm. and that's fine. That's legitimate. That's one side. Okay. And then you've got a certain symmetry, which is a fake symmetry. There's another side, and that's the Palestinians. And they have a right to a state, too, on 22% of the land. So if you're into that conflict sort of a thing, you've created a fake symmetry. Mm-hmm. Um, you're pretending that there's some kind of power equality, that these things can be renegotiated, and that justice can come out of some kind of a bantustan because the 22% is really a banter stand. Mm. Um, so that's too narrow an area. When we talk about, and this is the problem for example with BDS that's based on ending the occupation. That's a little teeny piece of this whole thing. A larger issue is apartheid because apartheid you have on both sides of the green line. The Palestinians inside Israel live in an apartheid regime as well. Maybe not like the West Bank because they have citizenship but they certainly don't have equal rights and they lived in, to some degree under a different legal regime apartheid is when you have one government system but different legal regimes for different populations and you certainly have that in in the whole country but the big big picture is settler colonialism mm. because that means that the whole country has been has been colonized and the only now the way you get out of a conflict is by conflict resolution, like I said, negotiating. So, you know, you've got years and years and years of Oslo and Madrid and uh, the Kerry initiatives and Annapolis and all these ridiculous that aren't gonna get anywhere because it isn't a conflict. It's a unilateral, in other words, the reason settler colonialism is so important to understand is that it's unilateral, is that the indigenous population has no rights. It isn't a side. Zionism never, ever, ever saw the Palestinians as a side with any rights of their own. It doesn't until today, Israel's never recognized the Palestinians as a people. So from the Zionist point of view, this colonial point of view, the whole idea is, yes, we're taking the whole country. Mm. That's what Zionism well, said Jeff, out to do. said, I
0: mean Zionism so didn't I set very, out I was,
1: to take seventy-eight percent of the country. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> of the
0: country. Jeff, oh, Jeff, I, was, I was, interested was interested in what on. you were saying about settler colonialism and its relation uh, mm. relationship with Zionism. Right. Uh, because I think this is a really very, very Zionism very
1: was the settler colonial movement. Yeah. Movement.
0: yeah. But it's very, very important because for a lot of people looking in from outside, uh, it's, a, it's a hugely complex issue. And you could argue actually that uh, if, if settler colonialism uh, is a more comparatively recent phenomena through Zionism that would explain why, for instance, the West Bank is described as Judea and Samaria. It's uh, part of the, right. is part of uh, the land that Jews want to claim uh, exclusively for themselves. Right. My question is though this, we have reached a situation now um, in the Western media where uh, it's actually becoming very, very difficult to actually discuss issues around Zionism and settler colonialism and apartheid. Um, and in particular, we've got this consideration right now, one of the major sort of techno giants, Facebook, um, actually saying that it wants to include Zionism, uh, use of, as hate speech. Which seems um, a quite extraordinary development. So I just wanted to get your take on that, because if we can't even talk about these issues, how are we ever going to solve them?
1: That's true. But the first step is that we have to develop a vocabulary of our own. We have to start using uh, a a colonial uh, vocabulary and terminology. So, for example, instead of talking about peace, and negotiations and all these conflict resolution related things, we have to start talking about decolonization. The only way you end a settler colonial situation is by decolonizing. And we can get into that in a few minutes if you want to. The problem, I'll tell you what the problem is. The problem is, and in a way, it's good that we change our language because then we can stay one step ahead of Facebook and everybody else. They can censor language that we used in the past, but they, they'll have trouble keeping up with us. The big problem is, look, settler colonialism is a well, well known entity in the academic world. There's journals and there's a thousand articles and there's books and everything else. The problem is that it hasn't yet penetrated into the popular discussion. We don't use the term for the exact reason that you started out with. People don't know what settler colonialism is. You say semi-colonialism, it sounds super academic. It's not a term we're familiar with. Then you get into decolonization and you say, what in the hell is that? Oh, well, so yeah, when, I was going
0: to ask you about that.
1: You see, When we're using terms like occupation and apartheid, mm. then those are easily understood words. So that helps us, but they're not helpful terms in some ways, especially occupation. So what our, our task is, and this is a task that we should all try to to, to work together with is how do we translate, because I haven't found the answer yet, a complex analysis based on terms like decolonization, settler colonialism into a language that can be easily understood by mm. We have to translate but not those just that, Jeff,
0: into, pra- into practice, because when you're talking about decolonization and settler colonialism, I'm thinking essentially about in my lifetime the the end of it in Rhodesia, southern Rhodesia, and it became Zimbabwe or Kenya. Um, right. Essentially, the settlers had to agree to to hand majority hand hand rule over to the majority. There was majority rule. Well. But also the use of that language would suggest to a lot of israelis that if they're going to be described as settlers and colonialists that actually right. their their position in palestine uh is go is is vulnerable so that they're not likely to be signing up to all of this are right. they so how what would a de- the decolonization of settler colonialism actually look like in israel palestine
1: right um <clears throat> that's that's a that's a that's a real issue because um you know, but it, it's very much, again, like South Africa. In South Africa, they knew they had to decolonize. You couldn't reform apartheid. You couldn't tinker with it and make it. And, uh, but they also knew that the majority white population, the, most of the whites in South Africa, they weren't the majority population, but most of the whites in South yeah. Africa would never go along with, uh, um, with dismantling the apartheid regime. So they took that as a challenge and governments also weren't on their side, the ANC side. And so what the ANC did is it went right to the international civil society. We were all involved, churches, religious groups, political groups, university groups, human rights groups. I mean, everybody was involved with the anti-apartheid struggle. That's similar to the Palestinian issue. The Palestinians know, we all know that Israeli Jews are not gonna be proactive partners in dismantling Zionism and decolonizing. And by decolonizing, what I mean is uh, to dismantle all the structures of domination and control that exists, create a new civil society based on equal rights, equal individual rights, although you could have your own identity if you want, your national ethnic religious identity, but equal individual rights, and then come up with a whole new democratic state. That's, that's mm-hmm. the idea of decolonization. But we know the Israeli Jews aren't going to be partners in that. So what we have to do is what the ANC did, I think, is we have to go to you guys, the International Civil Society. And the good news here is that there's a huge movement for Palestinian rights in the world. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, all over the world, there's, there's groups for, for Palestinian rights. The problem is that they're floundering because they, there is no political program. You can't be in a political struggle without a political program. BDS is not a political program. So we have many great campaigns against house demolitions, against settlements, um, you know, in support of Palestinian rights. I mean, all over you have that, but it's lacking that focus. It's lacking that, that ask, that demand, the political program. And that's what we're trying to insert in the one democratic state campaign that I'm a part of. We're trying to insert a political program. And if we can do that, and we already have the infrastructure of international support among the people. I think we could replicate what the well, Jeff, Let, let me on. Let me come
0: back to you on, on that, on the democratic one state solution. But before I do, I just want to bring in. Um, some of our viewers from around the world who've been sending in messages and some questions and perhaps you might be able to answer some of these questions. Um, Wally Yazbak he says, welcome, Jeff. Uh, Mike Martin, he said, hi, Mike. Uh, uh, hi, uh, 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 hi, Jeff, this is Mike from Aberdeen in Peace. Um, Lenovo asks, I agree that a single democratic state is probably the best option for Palestine-Israel, but as Jeff makes clear, the Zionist intent is Palestinian erasure. How does Jeff see the Zionist mindset ever moving from his historic and ongoing separatist exclusivism? Um, Another couple of questions, Um, Kate Scott. Kate says, Jeff is so right that this is not a conflict of equals or anything like, but how do we set about representing that fact to our governments who continue to declare that they support a two-state solution and the general public which generally accepts the propaganda that all Palestinians are terrorists? Uh, Michael Sumner says, I'd be interested in joining a one-state group. Is that currently possible? Well, look, there are lots and lots of other questions coming in, uh, which we'll get to. But do you want to take up some of those, Jeff, just to be getting on with?
1: Sure. Well, I think a couple of them I answered uh, towards the end. But, you know, one question is, uh, why do governments, why are they so committed to this conflict resolution thing, two states? You know, Biden now is back to the whole two-state thing. Why, what, what is there, why are they so uh, uh, inflexible about that, insistent on two states, even though they know that the two-state solution is gone? John Kerry, at the end of his um, initiative in 2016, uh, I think it was, um, basically said the two-state solution is gone. Martin Indyk, who was the American ambassador, who was the head of APAC? said that the two-state solution is gone, but still they hang on to it. And they hang on to it for the reason that it's a great tool of conflict management. They don't want to resolve the conflict here. Israel is their ally. Mm-hmm. I wrote another book that's called War Against the People in which I lay out how Israel uh, supplies the, the, the technologies of repression military technologies, all kinds of population control tactics that it's learned on the Palestinians, biometrics and security controls and so on, uh, Two states from the United States down to the Emirates and all over the world, Israel is, is one of the leading uh, China, China as well, one of the leading exporters of security and military. So it's very useful Uh, to the United States, and and no politician wants to expend the political capital that you'd have to expend to make Israel somehow withdraw. You'd get into a fight with your own political party. You get in the fight with the media. You get in the fight with the Jewish community. You get in the fight with the church communities. I mean, it's a lose-lose issue for a a politician. The best thing is conflict management. Let's just keep the two-state idea going and going and going, We can negotiate forever. There's two two sides, you know, that whole conflict kind of a thing. And that's why they're so committed to it because it'll let them keep this illusion going forever. You can always say, there's gonna be another round of negotiations. And of course the Palestinian Authority is playing into that as well. They legitimize it. So that's why we have to get out of the conflict resolution model and just say, this is really fakie and it's actually supporting the Zionists uh, and, and try to get into another model um, of, uh, you know, uh, this, this idea of decolonization.
0: Yes, I mean, you see, the thing is, uh, you did mention, I was going to raise this with you, the, the issue of, of Palestinian leadership. And, of course, we, we, we know that the whole... Uh, the Palestinian leadership has been riddled and infiltrated and opposition movements are riddled and 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 disabled we know all of that from what you've just been telling us uh, and we also know that historically the uh uh the Palestinians have been badly let down by uh many of their neighbors and many and and whereas the, the view on Arab street is very very different um that the the governments as we've seen now uh, the recent Trump uh uh, deals so that he's, uh, he's brokered between UAE all and Israel. And all all better. So it, it, I, could, we, I think we can, we can see very clearly where you're coming from in terms of your argument. Uh, but the, 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 the problems are so manifest, so difficult to uh, mobilize behind this really quite obvious uh, solution of a democratic one state, a secular one I'm assuming from what you've been arguing too. Yeah. Um, it's just, where do you start? Where do you start?
1: Right. Well, you start where we're starting, in the One Democratic State campaign. You start with the Palestinians. There has to be a Palestinian buy-in to this. We can't represent the Palestinians. We can support them, but, but it's their struggle, and they have to say. Now, the problem, is, the problem is, of course, that on the one hand, the Palestinian leadership has been co-opted you know, it's become a Palestinian authority that was set up largely by Israel, you know, specifically for these purposes of, of controlling, um, of being a Bantustan type type government. Uh, Abbas, uh, you know, Abu Mazen dismantled the PLO, PLO basically. The PLO was the national leadership way beyond the Palestinian authority. And basically that's been dismantled. And most Palestinians today I mean, I would say, if I don't want to represent them, I would say the vast majority of Palestinians have no problem whatsoever with the one-state idea. That's been the idea for years. The PLO began with the one-state idea. The problem is they don't believe it's possible. Yeah. You know, especially, of course, in the camps, especially in the West Bank and Gaza. And unless we can convince them that this is, it isn't utopian that this is actually a realistic, possible political program if we organize and then go to the international, mobilize the international community, it is possible. We are actors. If we can't convince them that we're really political actors, we have a real political program, we could really be strategic and we can win, then we can't. Well, there's a question
0: to to this end um, to you. Um, This is from David Prum in uh, the United States. Can the joint list begin to give all Palestinians meaningful representation within the Israeli political system towards the goal of giving Palestinians equal rights in a single state?
1: No, because the joint list, first of all, the joint list is a two-state idea. I mean, the only party in the Israeli parliament today, the Knesset, that believes in the two-state solution is the Communist Party. <laughs> Everybody else has gone, as I already said, It's it's gone. And we, we don't care that it's gone. Only they hang on to this. And you know, you've got, it's a catch-22 because in order to run in the Israeli elections, or as you would say in the UK, to stand in the elections, uh, you have to, if you're a candidate or a, your party's a candidate, you have to sign an, a, an oath that you support the idea of Israel as a Jewish state. So you could, So a, a party that's, that wants one democratic state, couldn't run, couldn't be, couldn't be active within the formal Israeli political system. That's why we have to go extra parliamentary. We don't have a mechanism, a political mechanism. We don't have a party. We don't have a state that would, allows us to function. And so we've got to do what the ANC did And that is carve out our own political space, using our only allies, who are the international civil society, the people.
0: I've got a question here. This is from Paul Parker. Um, He says, the way to end settler colonialism is decolonization uh, by dismantling Israel's matrix of control over Palestinians. Um, However, Palestine needs a single voice. So so long as Hamas and Fatah are opposed to each other, Israel won't agree to a democratic state. Uh, So he says, uh, Paul says, uh, how can Palestinians unify their government or their movement?
1: That's right. You don't need a single voice. Uh, We forget that when the ANC was founded in in South Africa, there was a significant movement against the ANC. There was, for example, the Pan-African Congress of uh, Minnie Wendela and Steve Biko, that didn't support the, the, in other words, they weren't the only voice. There were a lot of other voices. But in a sense, the ANC was able to, to formulate a political program that made sense, that, that uh, you know, that that they could show the way forward, that people could mobilize around. So I think we have to find a voice. And here it's very difficult, because a lot of Palestinians, it's true, see the PLO as their national representatives, still. But in a way it's a myth because there is no war. there is no PLO. And the problem then is we're saying, well, why can't we become like an ANC and, and become a civil society movement for one state? In other words, why can't the leadership come from the people up, the Palestinian mm-hmm. people upward? And there's a certain resistance to that because their idea is well, what mandate do we have? We're not, there. there is a, a Palestinian national leadership out there somewhere. We have no right as the people to take that initiative. And that's one of the, the, the things that Palestinians are gonna have to break through one way or another. Either resuscitate a PLO or, or develop yeah. a new grassroots organization.
0: Jeff, you, you, I mean, you will see that Mahmoud Abbas is talking about um, new elections, which has came somewhat out of the blue. Um, now, what do you think could possibly happen here? Does this new leadership emerge? Does this new manifesto, if you like, this, uh, does the PLO revive? Is it like like the Phoenix from the ashes? Does it come back? I mean, what do you think the, do, you, do you think uh, I mean, what do you think is the purpose of Abbas's decision to announce new elections? Does he, does he see it, this another way of trying to retain power himself, or yeah, is, he, yeah.
1: is he losing? I mean, what's happening? It's all conflict management again, he's, he's, he represents a very small little elite of VIPs that are actually profiting from the whole occupation. You know, uh, uh, Fayyad, Salam Fayyad, who was who an unelected prime minister of the Palestinian Authority coming from the World Bank, uh, was talking about a viable apartheid. In other words, for him, he said, I don't really need a state. I don't need land, I don't need territory. I need economic space. So if Israel would allow my business community to go get on with its business and trade with Israel and and send our goods over to the Arab world, that's enough for us. In other words, you have a a Palestinian so-called leadership today that hasn't been elected, that really I think is illegitimate, but claims to be the leadership that that really, you know, is able to kind of sort of say, we can live with apartheid. Give Mm -hmm. us this right and that right, let us have an elections, let us have these little symbolic things you can fly our flag over the mukata and that's kind of enough. And and they're a collaborationist leadership that, that in my view at least, but I'm not Palestinian so I can't really judge them, but in my view are illegitimate.
0: I mean, we were given some questions in uh, uh, Fahid uh, Abouakel. Fahid uh, is, is asking the question, really, I mean, how, how really can you make um, progress towards a one-state solution? Um, a, when the, the international community is still pushing for the two-state solution, but as he says, when, for instance, the United States continues to send 3 billion every year, possibly more now,
1: towards uh, Israeli defence uh, needs look israel's not as strong as it seems israel in my view has lost it in the court of public opinion you see it you know how the labor party in the uk is frantically trying to you know and the, the tories as well actually and everybody you know in other words israel is stronger with governments mm. because it has something to offer governments it's got again the military security technologies it's got it's a strategic location it can deal with iran and Saudi Arabia, you know, it has an important geo- geopolitical uh, role. But in terms of the peoples of the world, I think Israel's completely lost it. I don't think Israel's any more popular than the apartheid South Africa was. Now, so that's that, in other words, the ground is fertile. But the only way something's going to move, you know, just because you're unpopular doesn't get you anywhere. The only way it's going to move is if, if a force emerges from within the Palestinian community that says, this is the way out. This is a program. We've developed, for example, a 10-point program that you can see on our website. We have a website that's called onestatecampaign.org. And I think it's a very powerful program. It has to be fleshed out much more. But that, you see, that gives uh, direction and focus and leadership to a massive movement of people. All over, now they know where to go. And then I think that unleashes tremendous, tremendous, uh, uh forces. Well, thank, so you, thank you for hearing the- that,
0: Jeff. I mean, I think it's going to be very important for, especially people watching tonight, people who are going to, to share this with, uh, friends and colleagues and campaigners that we, right. we learn more about the one state solution initiative and what you're doing. Um, because uh, you know, from what you've been saying throughout, uh, the Palestinians looking towards uh, international opinion, international support uh, from where we're all coming from, we can see it, but we can also see this closing down of, of the debate in the in the, uh, in the the mainstream media. And uh, just as an aside, I mean, it would be of interest to you, I don't know if you picked this up, but the British Labour Party um, has in the past few weeks, it's been revealed, appointed a former Israeli military, a former a, 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 a analyst, of a spy, essentially, to, to, run, to look at its social media campaign. But more significantly than that, um, I was watching that the whilst the British foreign minister, a conservative, was critical of uh, the latest, as they always are, of the latest plans for more illegal settlement build, Labour Party had nothing to say at all and has has said nothing about the vaccination program as well. So this is an extraordinary thing. But look, here's some more questions coming in. Uh, Roger Waters, Roger says, um, should we advocate for a single democratic uh, equal rights for all state called the Holy Land, whatever that is in Arabic and Hebrew? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Uh, And Roger Waters says, Roger says, well, I'm an atheist. I'm an avowed BDS supporter. um, But uh, that's my question. Would this provide the political goal that
1: Jeff is demanding? Just asking. Uh, well, look, the, the name of the, co- the name of the state of the new country hasn't emerged yet. It has to emerge from the reality. In other words, it isn't just Palestine, because it'll have uh, a much broader population. It is, it's not Israel, obviously. Um, so the, the idea is that you, through decolonization, you create a new civil identity. A new identity emerges. But it emerges in a young generation. And as it emerges, um, the name of the country is going to emerge, whether it's Canaan mm. or the Holy Land or... What was or Zimbabwe. <laughs> you know, it might be something completely you know made up. Mm. The flag as well. I mean, you don't have that. Let me just give you one little quick example that I think is, you know, because you can't, you know, it's one good part of this that is that um, the young generation, if you can get to a, a new state, a democratic state, uh, the new generation moves on very quickly. Mm. Now imagine, you know, Israel and Palestine both have national football teams, soccer, you know, football yeah. in European yeah. terms. Um, and in fact, the Palestinians football team is, has a higher ranking in FIFA than the Israeli team does. Neither team has managed to get into the World Cup. What if in the new country we have, you know, and our players are together in a new national team, they get into the World Cup. Can you imagine what a nation building kind of a, kind of a thing that would be that everybody is now behind our national team those are the things that, that it's hard to, to imagine today, but those are the things that will be happening. Uh, and then I think we have to simply let this new state begin to emerge. A new political community will begin to emerge. Well, we as you're I, it exactly today.
0: As you're saying that, Jeff, I mean, um, there are plenty of other examples in recent history and before. I mean, I'm just thinking right now about the emergence of, emergence of Somaliland. Um, That has kind of happened, Mm -hmm. uh, unrecognized by the rest of the world, by the way, but de facto, it's there. Somaliland has emerged from Somalia. Um, Look, Robert in London uh, comes back to this question. He says, surely the missing link in all of this is the Palestinians organizing and leading from the front in their struggle for liberation. Uh, In the diaspora, for instance, in the UK, we have thousands of pro-Palestine supporters, but we lack an organized Palestinian voice leading from the front. That's right. It's an age-old question. How do we
1: support the creation of such an entity? That's what we're, that's what we have. You can't do that. We have to do that. And by we, I guess I, I it's not my role either in a way, although I'm part of the one-state movement. It's the Palestinians. The Palestinians have to get themselves together get behind this plan, begin to develop a a leadership that speaks out. It's true, today we're lacking a a strong Palestinian voice. There are strong Palestinian voices out there that are writing, um, that are doing poetry and theater and and films. I mean, this is very strong, but none of them have a political program behind them. So you you can generate a lot of sympathy and a lot of solidarity for Palestinians But it's not something you can bring to Parliament and say, "This is what we demand." You see, that's that's the hump that we have to get over. We have to we have to get these Palestinian voices onto a political program, and that's what we're working on now. I mean, we're trying to consolidate our base even now.
0: Okay, some more some more questions and some more uh, messages coming in. Uh, Lenovo says, uh, "Really important." Jeff a point Jeff makes: Israel may have the support of. Many tyrannical governments, but increasingly tyrannical governments, but ordinary people more and more disillusioned with mass media can see the reality of apartheid. And uh, John Dinnan says, good to see you, Jeff. Wally Yazbach says, spot on, Jeff. I would cheer for the joint national soccer team. Um, Michael Sumner says, the one state campaign does not seem to be something one can join. We'll come back to that. You can tell people if they can. Linda Ramsden says, also, see the website for ICAHD, www.icahd.org. We have interviews with Palestinians who call for one state, plus links to webinars with Jeff, who discuss... that. People are going to be (laughs) seeing more of you tonight, Jeff. Uh, Wally says, Abbas must retire. Um, And uh, Linda... Linda Ramsden says, add your name to the call that's come from the ODSC, One, the One that's State campaign. campaign. There we are. Right. So can, can people join the One State Campaign?
1: They can. We're still, again, we're just in the process over the last couple of years of, of organizing. You know, the fact that we, it took us a couple of years to formulate this political plan was, is really an important step forward. Right? It's a real good plan, I think. Um, and now we're trying to consolidate ourselves among the Palestinians, but you can join. Again, we have a website that's called the onestatecampaign.org, mm-hmm. and, um, and you can join through that and endorse our political program. That's really important. But you can also write to us at contact at onestatecampaign.org. And we'll send you a membership form, or we'll be in contact with you, uh, so certainly you can join and you know and then we're in the stage now we 're trying to get groups abroad to begin to do to do work for us as well so we 're just in the beginning stages, but certainly you're welcome to join us well
0: well uh, jeff, this isn't about you know te- teaching people to suck eggs and what have you, but you know w- when the anti apartheid movement really took off internationally, it did so with the support of you know, great, some prominent people uh, in the churches, in the trade unions, in, the, in politics, you know. Um, we've got some wonderful prominent people here, by the way. You know, Roger Waters uh, doing a great job out there. We've got some great people out there who are already known as, as, as influencers. But don't we really, isn't that the big next hurdle? Because you've talked about Arab Street, you've talked about international opinion, you've talked about young people. Um, all of that is all true. But what we don't, and you've also talked about your program and and, and, and what, what it takes to build a movement. But what we don't really seem to have are those some statesman like figures from around the world who people say, oh yes, she thinks it's a great idea. I'm going to get behind it. So how, how are we going to get more of these people on board?
1: You mean political people in trade unions, people?
0: churches, uh, mosques, right. uh, all sorts? But you know, people are, or you know, celebrities. Oh, you? Yeah. Uh, I don't, I almost, I'm almost shooting myself as I say that, but celebrities, you know, but but we, we need more people to to popularize this campaign, don't That's we?
1: Right. Well, I mean, you know, Roger's been doing some great stuff, but he was a part of what was called the Russell Tribunal on Palestine mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years ago. I, sp- I spoke for them as well in South Africa. They managed to get together a good number of celebrities, both political and popular celebrities. And. And, and thinkers um, on the Palestinian issue. Unfortunately, it didn't it didn't continue. It sort of had it it, it accused Israel of apartheid and proved it wasn't apartheid regime, and then kind of dismantled. So I think we have to find we have to find these sorts of forums where intellectuals and uh, and uh, and figures can can be begin to plug in. They exist. I mean, the churches are there. I mean, Fahad here. You know, was the moderator of the Presbyterian Church in the US. Uh, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Church of the Brethren, the Quakers, other churches have, uh, have, have come in. Certainly, there's a lot of human rights organizations, political organizations. There's a lot, there are people that are mobilizable. What I'm saying is the only way you can mobilize them in a coherent, long term strategic way. Is if they have a political program to advocate for. Yes. Without that, all they're left with. I mean, I, I, we've always favored BDS. We were, we were in favor of BDS before it was called BDS. Our uh, the organization that I come from, which is the ICAD, the hmm. Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions. The problem with BDS is, it's, is it's, it's a tool. It's not a standalone kind of a thing. It's a strategy. Yes, BDS, BDS isn't no. a political program. It's it. it You know, and so it has to be connected to a political program. And some of the people that are heading the BDS campaign are resisting that They're Mm. trying to keep it as a standalone sort of a thing. And I think that's counterproductive and even self-defeating. So we've got to bite the bullet, get behind a political program, and then everything we're doing, we should keep doing. BDS campaigning, singing, and lobbying uh, in parliaments, everything that we're doing is important if it's connected in the end to a political program that we're moving forward. Otherwise, it's just a lot of protest.
0: Je- Jeff, you've made that point consistently all the way through. And, but one, I mean, there've been a number of things that have been happening recently that that, that actually have moved the debate in, in, in a very different way from where uh, a, a lot of, uh, uh, the, the israel's uh that, well, the likudniks would 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 have liked it to have gone and that's you know betselem the the uh, prominent uh, uh, human rights group um mm-hmm. talking about uh the apart uh, an apartheid system in israel palestine but also interestingly taking its arguments into the universities and this really elicited a reaction from the government and from prime minister netanyahu they really did not like that mm-hmm. now for all that you've been talking about in terms of the political program the actual idea of, of one state um this is really powerful stuff to be taking into uh, universities surely in and mm-hmm. schools in israel in palestine amongst jews amongst christians amongst muslims and getting it out there and that's something it uh, becomes unstoppable then doesn't it
1: it does but it's not it's not very easy because don't forget in 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 uh, you know, in, in Israel, whether you're the Jewish community or the Palestinian community, the government won't allow you to do that. And if you're in the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority is not going to let you do that either. I mean, they're no more friendly towards the one-state solution and civil rights initiatives than the Israeli government is. And that's the problem we really have is, um, you know, it's very easy to talk. I mean, I look, I'm privileged. <laughs> you know as an israeli jew i live in a democracy israel's is a a great democracy if you're jewish mm. so i can speak out and i can yell and i can be on the street corners and i can do this and that and 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 advocate Pal- for palestinians it's much more difficult you know they've got a thousand things to think about they're very vulnerable most of them are barely surviving you know there's a lot of uh, of uh, of sanctions that they face, whether it's from the Israeli government or from the army or from settlers or from their own Palestinian authority. So we really have to cut them a lot of slack. I mean, I'm not trying to say that the, you know, the Palestinians are holding back. I think there's a lot of reasons that are holding them back. Uh, and I think it's a process, um, but it's, it's not as easy a process to, you know, for example, if a Palestinian organization uh, would say we support the one state idea they would be cut off financially not only by by churches in the UK that support them by you can't say apartheid anymore it's even getting hard to say occupation and still get funding the UN yes. cuts you off the EU yes.
0: cuts you off the well, this is it. Jeff, this is true. Now,
1: I wondered if I could just take you
0: because, you know, this is, a, you, you touched on it just there. Uh, a question from Alex Bustos. Uh, he says, uh, hi, Jeff, great to hear from you tonight. In the South African struggle, the national movement was divided, but Mandela and his close allies in prison were able to unite many black South Africans, despite how divided the liberation movement was and of the obstacles outside. Could imprisoned Fatah member Marwan Barghouti, who has remained fairly popular among many Palestinians, be someone who could do that? Be like Mandela, if you like. And if so, do you think he would embrace the One Democratic State
1: campaign? You'd have to ask him if you could get to him. <laughs> you know, look, the problem, the problem is, I mean, Marwan is a very bright, brave person, and he's really paying the price for his convictions. And he is one of the few Palestinian political leaders that it's true does have that transcendent kind of, a, of an appeal. He goes way beyond Fatah and the left and, and the right and in, within the Palestinian. He has that, that ability. So far, mm-hmm. uh, he's proven himself basically a loyal Fatah the person. In other words, he's still committed, as far as I know, to the two state solution. He hasn't disconnected in any way from from Abu Mazen and the PA. And so I think right now there's no indication that he would be willing to do that. He could very well be a Mandela type figure, but he, I think, um, I I don't know. I don't know what's going on in his mind. And certainly I could never judge him in his situation, but right now there's no signs that he's willing to to make that uh, transition.
0: Right, we're we're running, uh, sadly, towards the end of the show. We've only got a few more minutes left. I'm just going to uh, just look at uh, and put some final questions and points to Jeff from you all out there. Chet Johnston says, one state seems to be a good initiative with potential. However, if it is gathering momentum, it must hope to be a major pressure on all parties to make them comply. But is this still colonial thinking, defining a solution that Palestinians have to get on board with? So uh, perhaps you could look at that one, uh, Jeff. Um, uh, Wally Yazbach, he says, thanks, Jeff. You're the face of justice amongst Israeli Jews. God bless your heart. Um, uh, Roger Waters says, things have changed 14 years ago when I joined BDS. You couldn't say the word apartheid in the Israeli context. Now you can't join the conversation without saying it because it's a fact on the ground, whether the UN or the EU or churches like it or not. The trade union movement is with us Thank you, uh, Jeff and John. So look, uh, we are coming towards the end. I mean, I just actually, Jeff, it's been a fascinating, um, it's been a fascinating time spent with you today. We're very grateful because you know, I think my, my gut feeling, I'm I I sad that we can't see everybody who's joining us from around the world, but I suspect an awful lot of us feel quite beaten back because we are being told that we can't debate this and we can't debate that and I have a horrible feeling that if you were here in Britain, and you were a member of the Israeli Labor Party, a member of the, member of the British Labor Party, you'd probably be in the process of being expelled.
1: That's right. So that this is uh, so this is
0: a terrible situation. With
1: my um, friend
0: Schumacher over. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, but anyway, uh, Jonathan Kutap has said, uh, I've recently published through Nonviolence International a similar vision for a one state vision that addresses the needs of both Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs. A free PDF copy is available at, doesn't say, Jonathan, you don't say where it's at. Uh, yeah. Kathy Christensen says, no matter what vocabulary we all use, there'll never be a change unless we can convince the US political class that settler colonialism is the reality in Israel. Look, let, Jeff, um, let me uh, say
1: one more. Can I say one yeah, more thing? Yeah, you. You know, I also write in, not in this book, the book I have coming out now, it's, it's been published now, and I have a launch tomorrow, is called, um, Decolonizing Israel, Liberating Palestine, Zionism, Settler Colonialism, and the Case for One Democratic State. It's published by Pluto Press, so you can, you can buy it already, but the book before war against the people, I talk about global Palestine. and What I'm trying to say is, Palestine isn't simply a standalone little issue, but within the Palestinian issue are all the issues that are global. You know, military issues, issues of neocolonialism, issues of capitalism. In other words, the Palestine struggle in many ways is emblematic of, of all kinds of struggles of all kinds of peoples all over the world. And so I think that's something we have to emphasize as well is that the Palestine. you know, when you go to, um, you know, now the Keystone pipeline is in the news because Biden canceled it. When you went to Standing Rock in the Dakotas, when they were protesting, the Native Americans were protesting against the pipeline, people told me there were more is- more Palestinian flags there than there were American flags. Palestine's become emblematic and we can use Palestine beyond it, the Palestine issue itself, we can use it as a way to get at bigger issues. That's what I tried to do in the war against the people. Show how Israel's use of Palestine as a laboratory for developing the uh, military and security technologies and then exporting them to your countries. You know how that's a part of a global Palestine. So if you're in Ferguson, you know, or if you're in London, you're on the on the receiving end of Israeli policing technologies. So I think this idea of global Palestine is something we should elaborate more and more.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you very much for that, Jeff. And just before you go, uh, you, the, the official launch of your book is tomorrow. Um, how, how can, can, people, uh, can t- people take part in that? How do people take part in your launch with Yasmin Alibi Brown at Pluto Press?
1: um i don't know Pluto's put out a, an event bright thing i think if you just go into the pluto uh pluto press site you could probably get the oh look here we are in
0: fact um linda ramsden very helpfully said to attend jeff's book launch register here they are look online there look also found on the home page of www.icahd.org so there you are that's the event bright that's the event roy little says thank you jeff roy little from hereford Palestine Solidarity Campaign says thank you very much. We've had lots of people um, from all over the world sending in their questions, sending in, you know, making some really very, very important points. It's such a shame that we couldn't include everybody. But I'd like to thank Jeff very, very much indeed. We hope to have you back again, uh, Jeff. Good luck tomorrow. Um, And so really, it just just leaves me to say thank you uh, once again to Jeff, and thank you to all of you who've joined tonight. Uh, And thank you to the Palestine Deep Dive team to make make it possible every week, to Kieran, to Omar, Alex, and to Mac. Uh, Thank you for watching. And uh, finally, finally, a date for your diaries. Please join us on the 5th of February when we'll be joined by our special guest, Dr. Hannah Ashwari. And of course, these are Hannah Ashwari, Palestinian leader, legislator, activist, and scholar who served as a member of the leadership committee and as an official spokesman of the Palestinian delegation to the Middle East peace process. So then, until then, from uh, Jeff, from me, and from all of us here at Palestine Deep Dive, goodbye and thank you. Thank you much.